Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 5th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Yusuf Munayer and Emma Salzberg to talk about the fight against anti-Semitism and the simultaneously, simultaneous fight against the uses of anti-Semitism accusations to silence and undermine critics of Israel and advocates for Palestinian rights. Um, I will have full bios for Yusuf and Emma in the show notes, but just very quickly, Yusuf Manayer is head of the Palestine-Israel Program and senior fellow at Arab Center, Washington, D.C. Emma Salzberg serves as U.S. Strategic Campaigns Director for Diaspora Alliance, promoting understanding of how anti-Semitism works and how to fight it while protecting democratic values. So just as real quick context, we are gathering today um, basically because um, a week, a little over a week ago, uh, President Biden uh, issued his U.S. national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. There'll be a link in the show notes to all the rela- all those related documents. Um, so, you know, that that obviously has sparked a lot of discussion. For folks who are not familiar with um, the Foundation for Middle East Peace's work around anti-Semitism, you may be asking, why is FMEP covering the U.S. national security strategy to counter anti-Semitism? And here I just want to remind listeners and viewers that in recent years, there has been an ongoing campaign seeking to exploit concerns about rising anti-Semitism in the U.S. and around the world as a pretext for formally redefining the very concept of anti-Semitism to include and indeed center on and prioritize criticism of Israel and advocacy for Palestinian rights and expressions of Palestinian identity and, uh, and of course, anti-Zionism. Uh, Specifically, this is the battle around what is known as the working definition of anti-Semitism that was formulated by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or as most people call it, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which I just call IRA, um, who's not my uh, great uncle, it is this definition. Um, So IRA is the redefinition of anti-Semitism. It it, it conflates criticism of Israel and Zionism with anti-Semitism. And this redefinition has been used in the U.S. and abroad already to target Palestinian rights activists and critics of Israeli policies. We often refer to this as the weaponization of anti-Semitism. And and because of it, it has compelled FMEP, which is deeply engaged in this topic, topic, both as a funder and in our own work and our original research, um, to do a lot on the topic. We focus on it with podcasts and webinars and research, and there'll be links to that in the show notes as well. So we're going to dive right in. Um, In the first round of questions, I want us to just focus, um, Emma and Yusuf, narrowly on the text. Um, We can get into, you know, how we think it's being interpreted or implemented further on. But I want, I think it's important for people to understand what the text says and what it doesn't say. So Yusuf, I want to actually start with you. And actually, I want to build some background into this. So can you start off by explaining why the conflation of criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism uh, and anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism in the IRA definition text and, and interpretation is so problematic. And I also want you to talk about um, alternatives that have been proposed to the IRA definition. There's a lot of debate with the national strategy, whether it would or wouldn't include reference to other definitions. It ended up including a reference to the Nexus uh, document, which is another definition. Um, there's also the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, the JDA. Can you talk about the concerns about even these competing definitions from the perspective of Palestinians? Yeah, uh, this is a really important question, and thanks for having this uh, conversation, having me here. 
Um, you know, when we spend time in the weeds, uh, looking at the language of the different definitions, uh, how this word or that word can be interpreted, how it can be applied, uh, the different variations, the different examples, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it becomes kind of easy to lose track of the bigger picture, which I think is far more important. We have often heard anti-Semitism described as the world's oldest hatred. Um, and I'm not sure that's exactly true. It's probably misogyny, but uh, we, will, we will just go with that characterization. Uh, and it's obviously been around for a very long time. And a number of the organizations who supported the adoption of this definition, uh, the IHRA definition, um, their very reason for being has been to combat anti-Semitism, or at least so they say. Uh, and many of them have been around for decades, some of them uh, for a century. And yet the argument that they're making today, these organizations that have been around fighting the world's oldest hatred for a hundred years, uh, is that it's impossible to, to fight anti-Semitism without adopting this new definition, which is barely old enough to go to college today. What is this all about? Why is this happening now? Why the sudden effort to redefine anti-Semitism um, and, and, and a, a variety of different redefinitions of anti-Semitism all coming at the same time? This is, I think, the central question here and the reason why it's important uh, to understand how it impacts Palestinians. Um, you know, when uh, the first intifada uh, began uh, and uh, the world was changing all around Israel-Palestine, um, Israel and Zionism more broadly was thrown into a major legitimacy crisis. Uh, and people started asking questions about who these Palestinians are, um, what, what their plight is, uh, and whether or not what Israel is doing to them is legitimate, particularly among Western audiences, uh, which uh, Israel relies on heavily for support. That legitimacy crisis was largely mitigated by something called the peace process that provided a horizon, that provided a answer, if, if not an immediate answer, uh, a longer term answer for how to address this question. When that collapsed very catastrophically, uh, in and around the year 2000, uh, the legitimacy crisis around Zionism began to reemerge, especially as it became clear to more and more observers, again, in the West in particular, that the idea of a two-state solution, the idea of this horizon, uh, was now uh, impossible to achieve. Um, and so what we began to see was growing criticism uh, of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, um, uh, uh, more and more people hearing from and understanding Palestinians, and once again, the recentering of this crisis of Zionism, which had sold itself to Western audiences as this, um, you know, uh, as this effort to have a Jewish and democratic state. But the reality on the ground, of course, was one that was very different. And as Israel continued to shift to the right, that crisis in legitimacy became more extreme. And so what became necessary, I think, to do at that point from the perspective of those who are seeking to defend the legitimacy of Zionism is to change the way we talk about Zionism or change the way we are allowed to talk about Zionism. And a major effort began to take place. Again, a lot of these definitions are only, you know, um, a couple decades old and really did not pick up until after 2005 
when we saw, of course, global civil society demanding accountability for Israel's violation of Palestinian human rights with the BDS call uh, and so many more efforts internationally uh, to demand accountability. That's what these definitions are about. They're about changing what we're allowed to talk about when it comes to Zionism. And for Palestinians, of course, you know, being able to speak frankly about what Zionism means to them is, is central to talking about their experiences. Um, you, you cannot, as a Palestinian, um, talk about your experience without talking about how Zionism has impacted your lives and the lives of everybody around you and in your society. Uh, so this is an effort, uh, again, to change what we're allowed to say, precisely because it's become so difficult uh, for supporters of Zionism uh, to defend it, given the realities on the ground. Thank you. And that's really great framing for this whole conversation. Um, Emma, I want to come to you. And as I put in my slightly uh, premature introduction, I want to talk about the actual text now of, of the, the document that, that was issued a little over a week ago. So can you talk about how the strategy of the Biden administration deals with the whole question of defining anti-Semitism. And feel free to get into the weeds a little bit here. Yes, I will be reading directly from the text um, not long from now, but I also um, just want to note at the top that like part of what makes this document um, such a jarring read for people who spend a lot of time in the intra-Jewish communal debates about anti-Semitism is precisely that definitions have such a minor role to play in this document. Um, on uh, page 13 of the document, right before the first set of strategic goals, um, what the White House does is write its own definition of anti-Semitism in a paragraph. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to read it because it's pretty good. You know, we can have our quibbles, but uh, the White House says, anti-Semitism is a stereotypical and negative perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred of Jews. It is prejudice, bias, hostility, discrimination, or violence against Jews for being Jews, or Jewish institutions or property for being Jewish or perceived as Jewish. Anti-Semitism can manifest as a form of racial, religious, national origin, and or ethnic discrimination, bias, or hatred, or a combination thereof. However, anti-Semitism is not simply a form of prejudice or hate. It is also a pernicious conspiracy theory that often features myths about Jewish power and control. So like on one foot, you could do worse. Um, and then the most interesting part for the political fight over this um, is the next paragraph, which notes, which says, uh, there are several definitions of anti-Semitism, which serve as valuable tools to raise awareness and increase understanding of anti-Semitism. The most prominent is the non-legally binding working definition of anti-Semitism adopted in 2016 by the 31 member states of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, IRA, which the United States has embraced. In addition, the administration welcomes and appreciates the Nexus document and notes other such efforts. It goes on, this is a paragraph of its own, one line. The focus of this national strategy is on actions, actions is underlined, to counter anti-Semitism. So, and then the rest of the document is, in fact, focused on actions to counter anti-Semitism. So one way to read this national strategy is as a statement that says, hey, this definitional fight is a distraction. Um, and uh, this is a real blow right, to the campaign to ask governments and entities of all other sorts, Lara, you know all too well, 
um, to adopt the IRA definition into their official policies. Um, IRA proponents uh, note that it is the consensus, that it is the gold standard, uh, that it is the only definition that works. These are all direct quotes from IRA proponents. Um, and the White House's simple statement that there are several definitions uh, of anti-Semitism uh, is a real blow to that uh, assertion of consensus. Uh, and the fact that they noted another, that they welcomed and appreciated another definition and noted the ex existence of more uh, is, a, is a blow to the inevitability, uh, the perception of inevitability that the IRA campaign really trades on. So, uh, Great. Okay, yeah. we're going to get into that, all of that deeper in just a little bit. Yusuf, before we get past the text, I want to dig a little deeper. Um, so, so with that understanding of how anti-Semitism is or is not defined in the text, I want to ask you to zoom out. Um, Israel is still mentioned in the plan relatively few times in a 60-page strategy. When I say few, I say relative to the amount of effort that was put into trying to center Israel um, by advocates on the outside, but it is there. Um, I believe Zionism, the term Zionism is, isn't mentioned at all. Can you talk about how the text of the strategy overall deals with or doesn't deal with Israel in your view? And, and what do you make of the administration's approach that Emma just described of referencing IRA and Nexus and, and other definitions and even offering its own um, with its own, in contrast to IRA and Nexus, not in any way involving Israel or Palestinians, or as we see, even in even these definitions that are seen as more, more positive and, and, and not trying to be weaponized, but still centering somewhat on Palestinians. But can you just talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we need to keep in mind that there's a difference between the text uh, of the actual document that the White House put out and then the ways in which that text and specifically the actions which it calls for, and I think it calls for some 100 different actions, right, to combat anti-Semitism, how those actions are actually going to be enforced and how they're going to actually be carried out. Uh, and I think that there is a lot of gray area there and a lot of opportunity within that gray area uh, for those who want to see weaponized definitions of anti-Semitism directed at uh, Palestine advocacy, there's a lot of space there for that to happen. Okay, so I think it, we, we, we need to be honest about that, that outside of the text, um, that, you know, what, whatever one thinks of the, thinks of the text, it, 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 it is in the implementation by various agencies where um, acts of repression against Palestine ac uh, advocacy can take place regardless to whether there's a mention of any definition or, or, or an embrace of a particular definition at all, right? Um, you know, I, I think that that part is really important. At the same time, you know, the, the, the White House was clearly under a lot of pressure from a number of different uh, voices who supported the inclusion of the IRA definition. And the, and the adoption of the IRA definition by the White House as the um, sole legitimate definition that is recognized by the, uh, by the Jewish community. Um, and I think that, you know, clearly um, supporters of that, um, that perspective didn't get what they wanted here. Um, they uh, not only have wanted to uh, put forward this idea that there is consensus around this definition, which there obviously is not, 
um, but that it is the only way of thinking about this. Um, and I think, um, you know, prior to this strategy, actually the only definition that the U.S. government uh, had taken an official position towards, positive position towards, was the IRA definition. Uh, and now we, with this White House strategy, we actually see them saying, well, there are several useful definitions, right? Um, and, and we can parse the language and talk about the exact words they use to talk about each definition uh, and the fact that they came up with their own definition, as Emma, as Emma pointed out, uh, or the fact that they mentioned the IRA definition but didn't mention the very problematic examples that are often used uh, to weaponize the definition against uh, Palestine um, uh, activism. Um, but I think the other thing to keep in mind is, of course, anti-Semitism is a very real problem. Um, and the, the White House did, I think, uh, in part, uh, did not want their effort to address anti-Semitism, which they, of course, wanted to be taken seriously, um, to end up becoming known simply for this political fight uh, and also end up getting tied up in endless First Amendment challenges in the courts. Um, when uh, the reality on the ground here in the United States is that we do have a really dangerous ideology that is leading um, violent people to uh, attack Jews in the United States in ways that we have not seen prior to, to, to recent years. So I think from, you know, from the perspective of White House administrators, there's a political fight, but there's also the question of how is this actually going to be useful? Um, and I don't think it's going to be useful if it becomes weaponized, certainly not to those who really want to combat anti-Semitism. Um, and I think that's something that uh, those who wanted to make sure this works in the White House probably had in mind. Excellent. That's a perfect lead into my next question for Emma, um, which is sort of how did this happen, right? Um, so, so the pro-IRA crowd, and here we're talking about really powerful, effective organizations, the ADL, the AJC, the Jewish Federations, the Conference of Presidents. Um, we know, I mean, I'm not attributing intent here. We know what they wanted because they were very clearly on the record in tweets and in statements and in articles. They wanted an absolute unequivocal and exclusive endorsement of IRA as the basis of US policy. Um, so that's it. And, and, and I mean, I think we saw once, once the news started leaking that it might include a passing reference to Nexus, you got a sense that maybe they would tolerate that as long as I rose at the center. Instead, as you laid out, what they got instead was basically a brand new Biden definition that doesn't mention Israel. It's actually a pretty good definition. It's pretty close to the one that I articulate when I've been asked for years, what is anti-Semitism? Um, and, and, and they got, as, as we've said, this, the, they got language where you get the reference to IRA is there's only once. It's a passive voice reference about what's been done before. Um, it's described as the most prominent of several definitions. And I've seen articles saying that that proves that they're centering. And I'm like, most prominent is like saying, well, what's the most important, you know, what, what, what do you think is the best Jewish organization? You say, well, APAC is the biggest. That is not saying it's the best. You're saying it's the biggest. And IRA is the most prominent because millions of dollars have been spent for years to push it out in front. So, so basically, I mean, it, it's, it's a value neutral description. So how did this happen with all of the lobbying, all the work went into this? How did IRA end up not at the center of the strategy, aside from the fact that logically it shouldn't have been if you really care about fighting anti-Semitism, as Yusuf said, but politically, how do you think this happened? Yeah, it's a, it's the question of the moment. I think I wanna pick up on 
um, some of what Yusuf was just saying and point out that the official name of the uh, interagency, the like official government, government entity that put together this strategy is actually called the Interagency Group to Counter Antisemitism, Islamophobia, and Related Forms of Discrimination and Bias. Um, and their quote unquote first order of business was developing a national strategy to counter antisemitism, but they were actually officially tasked with uh, countering antisemitism alongside other forms of bias and discrimination. And so um, with that mandate, taking that seriously, and then also hearing from hearing the input of civil rights groups, groups like the ACLU and the Southern Property Law Center, um, from Muslim groups, Arab groups, uh, as well as progressive Jews um, and liberal Jews, really demonstrating uh, that there was a clear civil rights case against IRA um, being articulated across that, that swath of stakeholders, and that the, that the um, perception of, of Jewish unity behind the IRA definition was actually not really the case. Excellent. Um, so, and, and, and I, I will say, I mean, this is something your organization has done a lot of work around and I would point people if they want to see the kind of language that comes out of the groups that Emma is talking about. Um, I think a really good example is the letter that was uh, submitted. It was led by the ACLU to the American Bar Association last year, uh, pushing back against IRA. So there you saw a huge cross communal um, letter framing out the various objections. And I think it was a really effective way. Yusuf, I want to come back and, and Emma mentioned um, Arab American groups. I want to ask you to talk specifically, if you can, about how you see the engagement of Arab American groups and groups from that community that are focused on Palestinian rights. And, and here, I actually want to bring this out both because I think it's an important factor in terms of the relationships, the administration and, and the credibility of these groups. I also want to point out that one of the key talking points that's been used that was, that was seized on immediately to attack the strategy was that in the, the, the second part of the, the strategy, which talks about what they will do, there's a section on an, an inter-organizational an inter, um, effort commitments that have been made across the civil society sector to, do, to fight anti-Semitism, including commitments made by the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, it is one of the groups that is that is quote made commitments to counter anti-Semitism and build cross-community solidarity by organizations across the sector, the private sector, civil society, religious and multi-faith communities, and higher education. I mean, the mere presence of care on that list has been used by some to say the entire thing is obviously a sham. I will also say that I was on a, a briefing call with the ADL last week where Jonathan Greenblatt said that just proves that CARE has adopted the IRA definition um, because his framing is that, and we'll get to in a second, that they have adopted the IRA definition. But can you can you talk about the Arab American group's engagement on this? Yeah, and, and I just want to make one, one point about the uh, previous question that you had asked to, to Emma. You know, I think, I think given the amount of uh, the, the, the sort of full court press, the, the pro-IRA crowd, as you put it, made uh, to try to ensure that the IRA definition was the only definition that was included and was the, the quote-unquote gold standard. Um, I think because of that, uh, and obviously because of, of, of a, a lot of um, their impact historically on these issues, uh, there was the assumption that um, it was going to be hard for the White House to, to say no. It was going to be hard for the White House to um, do anything but 
what these major organizations were calling for. Uh, and I think there was a, a bit of surprise uh, when we saw that that wasn't the case, right? And that, and that might seem surprising, but at the same time, I think it's important to remember that one of the reasons this entire strategy of trying to shut down the conversation around Palestine is seen as necessary by these groups is precisely because of the limits of their influence and precisely because they're, they are no longer able to um, shape the conversation to the extent that they were previously. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, as important and as influential as some of these groups may be, um, they aren't they, they aren't the last word on on uh, this uh, issue all the time. Um, and I think more and more we are seeing the the, the limits of the, the influence of some of these organizations um, in uh, in recent years. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to Arab American groups and, and Muslim American groups, it's interesting that you say that about um, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt and on the recent uh, conference call um, makes me wonder if he's now taken care off of his uh, his blacklist, because I think he put them on a, on, on, uh, a list of, uh, you know, uh, groups that were akin to right wing extremists or, or, or whatever else. Um, the photo inverse of, of neo-Nazis or, how, or however he described them like a year ago. Um, so it's glad to see that he's coming around. Uh, but um, uh, look, the reality is that you can't fight any type of, of racism without fighting every type of racism. Um, and I think that's one of the things that um, is, is a fundamental weakness among the pro-Ira crowd. What they're saying is the only way you can fight anti-Semitism uh, is if you turn a blind eye towards apartheid in Israel and don't say anything about that. Um, and that's just not the way that you fight any type of bigotry. Um, and I always go back to the example at the, at the, the Tree of Life synagogue, uh, the, the, the murderer in question there is on trial right now. Um, and, you know, when he went to attack that synagogue, part of the ideology that was driving him was the fact that he thought that Jews were part of this uh, big conspiracy theory to weaken American society by bringing in brown Muslim refugees. Um, and unless you can understand the ways that these, these forms of hatred are connected, and I think it's vital to bring in the voices of impacted communities to do that, then there's no way that you can really combat uh, these, these strains of anti-Semitism. At the same time, especially given the um, uh, demands uh, around the IHRA definition. Um, you can't ignore the voices of people who are going to be affected by that definition when it is weaponized by so many of the groups who want to weaponize it. And specifically here, I'm, I'm talking about people who uh, speak up for the rights of Palestinians. Uh, and, and, and the people who are targets of this weaponization are uh, very often um, young Muslim women. Uh, and so I think it's important that uh, the, the voices of, of communities uh, who are impacted by this have a voice in this conversation. And as Emma said, this, this interagency group uh, was not only focused on anti-Semitism, uh, but importantly uh, framed it uh, as uh, part of an effort to uh, fight various forms of hatred. Thank you. And that's, again, a good segue into the what I want to be talking about next. And, and I want to 
you mentioned young Muslim women, I, I, I want to bring into this the concept of anti-Palestinian racism as we look at the different kinds of racism and discrimination that need to be fought. And, and, and before we just put a pin in that, that's part of this question. Um, but Yusuf, I want to stay with you for a second. The, the strategy, as, as you said, right from the outset, includes many, many commitments and objectives and calls for action, including by Congress. And I spent a lot of time focused on Congress. An optimistic take might be that given what's in the actual text and what it doesn't say with respect to IRA and criticism of Israel, this strategy should put a damper on the efforts to see the formalization, adoption, you know, put in the, the enforcement by law of the IRA definition against Palestinian rights activists and free speech. A more pessimistic take, and I'd argue a more realistic one, is that IRA backers, many of whom right out of the gate basically came out saying, we 100% welcome this uh, strategy and its embrace of the IRA definition, and we're just gonna pretend that's what it says. Um, and that they're gonna seek to leverage this mischaracterization um, to escalate their own efforts and intensify the policies of um, trying to police and delegitimize um, free speech with the conflation of criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. And, and we're already seeing that. And, and I'm going to give two examples. One is last week, we already saw the introduction of legislation in Congress that seeks to put the IRA definition into law. And two, it seeks to put it into law in the context of the um, very public um, uh, hysteria that has been generated around a graduation speech given by a young Yemeni woman at CUNY, um, CUNY Law, in which she she leveled some very, very harsh criticism of Israeli policies and Israeli actions. Um, argument, she articulated things that I think make a lot of supporters of Israel deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, I would argue none of it is anti-Semitic. It's there, there are clearly arguments against the state of Israel and its policies. It's not anything about Jews and Jewish identity. Um, but we basically now have the entire organized community rallying against her. We have death threats against her. Um, the ADL call I mentioned focused in part on that, I believe in a question that was bookended with the uh, Tree of Life massacre, which was pretty stunning. So can you talk about how you anticipate this playing out and, and the concerns that you may have, and you've mentioned some of them already, on how efforts to implement the strategy, using the strategy now as a weapon and a shield um, could may may impact advocacy for Palestinian rights and expressions of Palestinian identity. Right. Look, I, I think that the people who uh, and the groups uh, who for whom this strategy of weaponizing the IHRA definition was something that they were supporting prior to the strategy, uh, this strategy is not going to change a whole lot in their approach, regardless to what it said. Uh, they were committed to it uh, and are going to continue doing so. And that's why, regardless to what the actual language of the strategy is around the IHRA definition, uh, even if it is very different than what they called for in the days just before the strategy was released, uh, they're going to pretend it is exactly what they wanted uh, and, um, you know, uh, use that as an opportunity to claim that there is continued momentum behind uh, their uh, campaign. Uh, to not only proliferate this definition, but also, importantly, have it enforced uh, in the way that they want to see it uh, enforced. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, you could you could imagine a scenario, of course, where uh, the White House did exactly what these groups wanted, 
uh, and what they were calling for and didn't mention alternative definitions and said that, you know, we see anti-Semitism purely through the prism of IRA and there's no other way to define it and so on and so forth. And I think if they did that, obviously the, the pro-IRA campaigners would be even more uh, excited uh, and would feel that they had more wind at their backs as they continue this campaign to proliferate it. Um, uh, but they were going to continue on with this campaign regardless to what the White House strategy said. So I do think the fact that it did not, um, it didn't, it did not take this wholehearted um, embrace of their position uh, is something of a setback for them, especially given the importance of the United States um, uh, internationally, its bilateral relationships with so many of the other countries um, that are considering adopting or implementing this this definition as well as other international organizations. Um, so I think, you know, I think it is important that uh, there, there is a distinction there, but it probably wasn't going to change a whole lot of what these pro-IRA campaigners uh, were doing. Um, my biggest concern is really with the implementation of this thing, uh, because at the end of the day, it's not going to be the people who were part of this, uh, you know, working group that the White House put together. It's going to be uh, a, a wide range of functionaries at various levels of government who are going to be uh, called upon uh, to enforce this strategy. And there are going to be many pro-IRA campaigners who are going to demand that they enforce it within their agencies, within their institutions, in the way that they want to see it enforced, to direct it against the people that they want to direct it against. And I think, you know, we know how this is going to play out or how they want it to play out. And, and the, the speech at CUNY is, is the perfect example. Um, there's a reason why uh, the, the, the student speaker at CUNY is being used as a poster person uh, by the pro-IRA uh, campaigners. Um, and it is because uh, they can rely on existing racism and Islamophobia for traction uh, when... Um, uh, when making their calls to action. Uh, there's a reason why Representative Ilhan Omar gets the kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, attacks that she does. Um, but Representative Betty McCollum, who happens to be a white woman from Michigan and was uh, a leader in putting out legislation uh, around Israel's treatment of, of child prisoners, you know, the, the attacks against her uh, which, uh, you know, we sometimes hear is, is, you know, blood libel against Israel for saying that they attack children or what have you. Those don't seem to stick against her in the way that they, uh, those, those kinds of smears tend to stick against people who are identifiably Muslim and particularly women who are often living at the intersection of so many different types uh, of, of bigotry and hatred, making them uh, really the easiest targets out there. Um, so I think, you know, I, I expect that there is going to be uh, an intensification of this campaign, uh, and it's really going to focus on um, how to push institutions and people at various levels um, to adopt the definition and the enforcement of it in the ways that they would like to see. Thanks. And, and I agree with you. That's my biggest concern as well. I, I would note for people who pay attention to these sorts of things, much like the attacks on Congresswoman Omar and Congresswoman Tlaib, the attacks on the speaker um, from the CUNY speaker have been bipartisan. Um, my roundup from last week rounds it up the statements from members of Congress um, with the lead coming from Richie Torres and then people just and, and it, it is absolutely bipartisan. Um, it is it is really something something to see. Um, 
Emma, I want to sort of ask you a similar question, but it's like a slightly different tack. And I, I know you were also, I think, on the ADL call that I listened to last week. One of the things that was striking in that call, having, you know, as someone who had read the document and 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 parsed the words, was um, the the positions taken or, or the the views expressed by President on Biden's special envoy for anti-Semitism, Deborah Lipstadt, who, um, as far as I heard it, appeared to very much um, weigh in with and bolster the framing offered by the ADL's Jonathan Greenblatt, suggesting that this document is a wholehearted embrace of IRA, absolutely 100%, and, and there's nothing else to it. Um, with, with that as context, and you being someone who is engaged in you know, conversations with people, I think, in the administration going for, going up to this point. Can you talk about your own hopes and concerns with respect to implementation of the strategy? Are there things you're particularly worried about and hopeful for, given what you know about where different parts of the administration are on this? And, and how do you see the Biden administration? How should we understand the Biden administration when you have, on the one hand, this, this document coming out of a process, and I say as a former, as a former diplomat, Every word in this document was carefully considered. There's not a word here that is an accident. They didn't accidentally not wholeheartedly embrace IRA, right? Um, it's not an accident that the one mention is passive. Um, but you know, how do you see an, the Biden administration when there may there appears to be a disagreement within Biden officialdom about what it is meant to say and, and how it should be implemented? Yeah, um, great question. Um, I, I regrettably also was on that uh, webinar last week. And um, an additional piece of context that I think is useful here um, that sort of explains some of the um, seeming like uh, incongruities in the White House's paragraph about definitions, like what does it mean that the United States has embraced IRA if we're also saying that it has not adopted IRA? What that's talking about is that the State Department adopted the IRA definition for its own purposes. Um, during the Obama administration. And uh, that was something that uh, progressive Jewish groups asked the Biden administration to reconsider in 2021, um, not to drop IRA, but to add uh, Nexus and the JDA um, to its list of educational resources that it uses to train diplomats and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken emphatically rejected um, that demand. And so um, what we're seeing since the release of the strategy, um, and so what that means is that Deborah Lipstadt, who is the administration's highest ranking official, who is explicitly tasked with monitoring anti-Semitism, but whose official remit does not include domestic policy at all. She's a State Department official. Um, her department's official policy, and now the White House's official policy, are not perfectly aligned. There's differences there, there's tension there. Um, and what we have seen, um, not only in uh, that ADL webinar, but even on her own Twitter account, um, since the release of the strategy, is that uh, Ambassador Lipstadt has aligned herself with critics of the strategy, proponents of the IR de definition, including quite far right Israel advocates, um, if you go look at her Twitter timeline. Um, and I'm very concerned about that. I think that's deeply worrisome. Um, and that's that's sort of a major um, political concern. And beyond 
beyond Israel and discourse about Palestine, which this document really tries to push us to go, and I'm happy to go there. Um, I would say my my most sort of my biggest top line concern about the document um, is just that over and over it encourages closer ties between Jewish communities and law enforcement, and like that's not surprising as it is a government document, um, but feels very important to register up top that that is not um, a strategy that I think is going to keep Jewish communities safe. Um, and there are also uh, sort of big areas uh, that will be sites of contestation under education. So um, it's been very interesting to follow uh, the other area in which the United States federal government has nominally adopted the IRA definition, which is uh, the Department of Education under a uh, executive order signed by Donald Trump in 2019, executive order 13899, um, which the Biden administration has been engaged in rulemaking on for the last about year and a half. And uh, that rulemaking was uh, delayed in December of 2022. And uh, instead of a rule, which would be um, basically like a formalizing of that executive order into policy, um, the uh, Biden Department of Education instead released a fact sheet, um, which does not mention IRA at all, and which basically reaffirms uh, the administration's existing commitment to protecting Jewish students alongside students of uh, all religions from uh, discrimination based on their uh, real or perceived, uh, I believe it's ethnic characteristics, but I that language might not be exactly correct, but it's basically, they wanna protect Jews from anti-Semitism. They don't wanna promote IRA. And what happened uh, on the date of the national strategy release is that the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights also released a Dear Colleague letter, which is a sort of stronger, it's like uh, not quite a regulation, but a stronger sort of statement of how they're going to be enforcing the policy. Uh, that again, that doubles down on the sort of framework of the fact sheet, does not um, refer to IRA, uh, refers to the executive order in pointing you to the fact sheet. So this is a pretty clear set of signals from the Office for Civil Rights that they don't want to be um, enforcing IRA. Um, and that they've kind of like held their non-IRA anti-Semitism policy until the national strategy came out. Um, but that fight is still ongoing. That rulemaking process is technically still open. So that's something watching um, as well. There's language in the strategy about ethnic studies, um, which is not really like going to be an especially, I think, a priority of the right-wing organizations at the K-12 level. Um, and that is a really tough, uh, it's just, it's a tough terrain because they're, uh, those, that policy is made in, in such a fragmented, geographically dispersed way. Um, but, you know, it's, it's those ongoing attacks on, on ethnic studies um, have been part of a right wing, uh, a broad right wing attack on public education. Um, and it's very concerning to see uh, you know, right-wing establishment Jewish groups gearing up to sort of take their part in that broader assault um, on public education. I would I wanted to also pick up on something Yusuf said on this kind of note and say that the attacks um, on the, the CUNY law commencement speaker certainly draw on existing wells of racism and Islamophobia. 
And another piece of why that is um, so potent, why these attacks are so potent and so appealing is that they also draw on existing desires to defund CUNY, right? That this is like part of attacks on institutions that this sort of political coalition does not actually want to exist or to exist in their current forms. Um, and as far as like there are positive things, <laughs> encouraging things uh, in the strategy as well, um, there's some very interesting language about um, you know, non-punitive um, approaches to victims of hate violence that I would really encourage folks to um, look at and consider wielding some pressure around using that. Um, and, you know, all of these, uh, another way to think about uh, these upcoming attacks on college campuses, on K-12 education, is also as an opportunity um, for progressives, particularly progressive Jews, to organize, to plug in, um, get involved um, with campaigns uh, for ethnic studies, for example, in your local context um, and build relationships and build solidarity that way, um, which is again, an, another pillar of this strategy. So hoping it can, uh, can encourage, yeah, just more sort of cross-communal connections and cross-communal organizing. Terrific. And, and just to mention um, on the ethnic studies question for people who don't follow this stuff obsessively, um, Israel and how it deal how ethnic studies programs deal with Israel and with you know Palestinian ethnicity um, and this has already been a huge topic um, just Google California ethnic studies um, I would also say on the education piece of it and and this actually you know goes into the question of what what the remand of various U.S. officials is. I mean, again, on the on the ADL call, ADL call last week, I think one of the, the one of the moments that took me the most by surprise was um, when Deborah Lipstadt was giving an example of what she saw as anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, or activism um, critical of Israel being unquestionably anti-Semitism. And she she articulated an example where she described an attack on students Jewish students at GW celebrating Sukkot by critics of Israel. And, and it was quite a striking example to give because that isn't what happened. Um, what she's describing is a well-documented case where you had activists protesting the appearance of a former IDF official at GW Hillel, which time-wise actually coincided with Sukkot, but it wasn't about Sukkot. Um, it wasn't an attack on a Jewish celebration. It wasn't any of those things. And, and on a conference call with 1800 people or a webinar, she, she put that out there as fact. Um, which I found um, incredibly troubling. Um, so I, I think we, I think how this, you know, the implementation question, the intentions is is something that I think a lot of us are are reasonably worried about. Um, before we get on to the last section, which is where I'm going to ask you to be a little more maybe optimistic, um, Yusuf, as we're talking about what things look like going forward, I do want to take a second for our audience and, and look back. Um, <clears throat> Defenders of IRA always note that there's a caveat in the definition that says, quote, criticism of Israel, similar to that leveled against any other country, cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic, in effect suggesting that the IRA definition is absolutely not a blunt instrument. How in the world could anyone say so unless they are anti-Semites or trying to defend anti-Semitism, and that it is never, ever used or going to be used to quash criticism of Israel and activism related to Israel and Zionism. And, and you know, when, when Emma was just talking about the concern about how this is implemented down the road, particularly by law enforcement, I just kept thinking about what's happening in Germany today, where the pro-IRA crowd has effectively 
um, imbued German law enforcement with the view that Palestinians by nature are anti-Semitic and any possible event that would bring together support for Palestinian rights is just an opportunity to be anti-Semitic and all symbols of Palestinian identity are anti-Semitic. I mean, that's now just part and parcel of the, the, the law enforcement approach in Germany. So, you know, can you talk about how IRA, you know, like in Germany is already being used as a blend instrument against activists, against academics, against free speech? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I think one of the big challenges that is a lot of people don't really understand how, you know, uh, a collection of words on paper can end up um, silencing, intimidating, coercing, and repressing activists. How do we get from a definition uh, to that, that, that act of repression? Um, and there is a process, and it's, it's, it, it is that process that people, I think, have the least understanding of unless you've been subjected to it or you're following this issue very, very closely. Usually, the, the, the way that this plays out is that a campaign is launched against a particular target, whether it's a student speaker at a commencement or a Palestinian student group uh, or a employee at a company or what have you. This institution uh, where this target is affiliated may or may not have adopted the IRA definition. Um, but either way, this campaign will approach the institution and say, look, according to the most prominent definition of anti-Semitism, uh, this student on your campus who said free Palestine from the river to the sea is uh, denying, uh, you know, uh, example A, subsection B of the IRA definition. And therefore, unless you take strict action against this student, uh, you are going to be enabling anti-Semitism on your campus. Now, you know, any administrator would receive such a complaint and, and obviously want to take it seriously. Uh, and would then probably, as often as the case, launch an investigation into the student or into the professor or into the student group or the employee or what have you. Now this, you know, uh, target uh, has to suddenly defend themselves against a investigation. And, you know, let's be honest, most of these institutions who are enforcing this policy don't understand the language uh, and, and the specifics and the nuance around the conversation of, of Israel-Palestine. The vast majority of people don't. And so they're going to look for support and expertise to help them understand how this definition uh, is uh, to be applied and interpreted. Uh, and lo and behold, the people making the complaint or their friends have a whole list of experts that can help you understand how this should be interpreted uh, and implied uh, and applied. Um, and so, you know, it, this is the process through which institutions end up using this definition to take action against individuals for perfectly uh, constitutionally protected speech. That's how this happens most of the time. It's how it has happened. There are cases like this that are ongoing now. Um, and again, whether an institution has or has not adopted this definition, it doesn't stop the pro IRA campaigners, the lawfare groups, and this this broader uh, network of repression actors uh, from um, uh, pressing those institutions to silence um, the the students or professors or or employees who are affiliated with them for speaking up uh, about the rights of Palestinians uh, and about the problems with Zionism and and so on and and the case of Germany I think is uh, a really great example of where this can go. 
where any symbol of Palestinian expression becomes uh, equated with, uh, you know, uh, some sort of anti-Semitic expression uh, to the point where kafiyas and Palestinian flags are being, um, uh, you know, taken away from people at marches in the streets by the police because they see these as anti-Semitic expressions. I mean, if, if, if you were to design a strategy to silence dissent against Israeli policy, this is probably what an effective strategy would look like, is the, is the, the, the German example. And I think that um, you know, supporters of, of, of the IRA definition and these campaigners would like to see many more countries uh, look the way that Germany does when it comes to silencing Palestine activism. Um, and, you know, I think that's uh, that's the direction that they would like to push things. And I'll just also add for people who think this is hypothetical, um, the the ongoing case at George Washington University against a professor named Lara Sheehy, Palestinian American professor. You can read the stand with us complaint against her. And it basically opens with the IRA definition. And then it says applying this definition, everything in the complaint is based on the Israel elements of the IRA definition. Um, there's nothing else. If you don't have that definition, there is no complaint. Um, so it, it's it's not it's not remotely hypothetical. Um, Emma, did you want to jump in here? I have a question for you, can but I, you can jump in first. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Can I just add one more thing on this? I think you you know you you, you mentioned Laura that you know these the proponents of the IRA definition say, well, look, it says criticism is fine, and and you know how can it be used as as a weapon in that case? The same people who say that at one moment, when you look at them speaking about this issue in other contexts, amongst each other, in uh, meetings with Israeli government officials, with, with, with on webinars with other pro-IRA campaigners, they talk about how they want to use this definition to go after people who practice BDS, to go after you know people in the campus environment and so on and so forth. So uh, they're actually quite transparent if you look into it about the way in which they want this definition to be utilized and to be weaponized. Yeah, um, to directly respond to that last piece, the thing that I always um, think about with regard to like these specific examples is that you know, it says criticism of Israel that is similar to criticism leveled against any other country cannot be anti-Semitic. There's no other country that is the Jewish state. So you have an out. You always have an out if you're applying that example. Um, I, I call then, that the all lives mattering of criticism of Israel. You can, it, it, you, it's anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, and, and I wanted to just say a little bit, um, I'm actually speaking to you from Germany right now. I'm in Berlin on a staff retreat with my coworkers. And, um, the, our Germany team was was really excited um, at the outcome of of this document. Um, for one, for the blow that it that it poses to the campaign for IRA, but also they noted something that I think is like not um, a small thing and something that we should uh, really hold on to, which is that um, not everywhere in this document, but over and over anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry are presented alongside each other. And what I'm told um, from my German colleagues is that in, in the German context, that is unthinkable, that anti-Semitism is really deeply, culturally, legally exceptionalized. Um, and that part of what we see out of this document is that that is not um, the approach that is fully being taken here. And there are real openings to apply some of the logic 
that is intended to protect Jewish students from discrimination, also to Palestinians. I actually want to point to something in the text, and this is like a little bit of a, um, I don't, I'm not sure if this reading is like too cute or trolling, but I think it has some potential interest. So I'm going to point us to it, which is uh, on page 40, there's talking about addressing strategic goal 3.4, addressing anti-Semitism in K-12 schools and on college campuses. And the second paragraph down says, on college campuses, Jewish students, educators, and administrators have been derided, ostracized, and sometimes discriminated against because of their actual or perceived views on Israel. All students, educators, and administrators should feel safe and free from violence, harassment, and intimidation on their campuses. Far too many do not have this sense of security because of their actual or perceived views on Israel. Protecting actual or perceived views on Israel is like not, um, that's new language as far as I can tell. But what I wanna offer is that that could also be applied to anti-Zionist students, to Palestinian students who should not feel unsafe uh, or uh, harassed or intimidated because of their views on Israel. Just an offering. That's obviously, I, I think it's pretty clear from the rest of the paragraph that may not have been how it was intended, but that is how it is written. Um, and so I basically like, I wanna um, yeah, just sort of offer that there is, uh, the German example is horrifying. And we are there, we have resources to stop ourselves from getting there. Excellent. Okay, so we're running over time. We try not to ever go over an hour on a podcast. So for listeners, I apologize, but I have one more question for each of you. Um, and be as brief as you want or not, if there's more to say. So Emma, um, only looking ahead, because you're involved in you you that you're continuing, right? This is what you do. So how do you see progressives taking this, what I what is at least technically on language, a victory. It's a, it's a victory in that the other side didn't get everything they wanted at least. Um, and building momentum to carry forward into the battles that as we have just been discussing are clearly to come. Um, what kinds of pushback do you think um, will be necessary with respect to the efforts to continue to weaponize IRA? And, and where do you see that pushback coming from? You are muted. Oh no, dragging us out even longer. Um, I, I don't want to say too much. I know we're over time, um, but I think that um, part of what is so remarkable about the tantrum that the right-wing organizations threw um, over the sole adoption of IRA in being the sort of measure of success or failure of this document is that it demonstrates that that is actually what this process was about for them. Um, and this is a moment for progressives who and, and liberal Jews who actually have a vision of what it looks like for Jews to live in safety alongside our neighbors across many lines of difference um, to uh, be heartened that like we are we are the ones who are serious about anti-Semitism. We are the ones who want to be living in safety um, and to be inspired to uh, perhaps join some organizing uh, in defense of your local public schools or libraries um, fighting against uh, repression, both based on criticism of Israel and also just the broader um, attack on basic freedoms that we are seeing in our country right now. Thanks. And I'll just add to that. Reading the, reading the, the text, I recognize, I, I think it's clear how the, how the other side is going to try to interpret it and implement it. I do feel as someone who's often attacked on this issue that 
whether or not that was the intent, the Biden administration has left us in a better position to defend ourselves. If before this strategy came out, the only language that had been in any way formally adopted by the administration was the State Department's embrace of IRA and the executive order in the education department, we now have a formal, a formal statement of the Biden administration that basically says its own definition, which I'm willing to hang my hat on, and the rest of them are part of a basket of definitions that have value. Um, I, I feel like, you know, if I have to ever, you know, make my case in court, they've left me in a much stronger position um, to, to defend myself and push back against what the other side is doing. Um, Yusuf, I want to give you the last word. And again, I want I, this is sort of the looking ahead. And, and actually, I want I want to look to you for practical, your practical advice. So one of the pillars of this strategy is the building of, quote, cross-community solidarity and collective action to counter hate, which sounds awesome. And as we've talked about before, it doesn't exceptionalize anti-Semitism. It frames it as akin to other forms of hate, including racism. It talks about Islamophobia. It talks about creating a, quote, united front against anti-Semitism, racism, all forms of hate. And then it talks about what it's going to do. And it's got, like we talked about, this long list of groups that are supposed to be involved from oddly enough, the NBA, uh, to the ADL and the AGC, and then the Southern Poverty Law Center. What sort of guidance would you offer to organizations and to individuals as, the, you know, as they're asked to fulfill these commitments in coalition with these groups that may have very, very different agendas? And, and here I'm thinking, especially the groups which are focused specifically on civil rights, human rights, and, and are a part of the Arab American, Muslim American um, fabric of this country, when they're working in coalition, how, how do they engage effectively so that they're, you know, they are partners in the fight against anti-Semitism and hate, and also standing up against this effort to push push the the commitments in a different direction? I think the only thing that I would say is that there is simply no way to fight anti-Semitism or any other form of bigotry or hate. Um, in um, in isolation, uh, and uh, you know you cannot uh, claim to be fighting anti-Semitism while turning a blind eye towards or supporting discrimination against Palestinians or any other group of people, uh, whether that is uh, you know Palestinians under Israeli rule uh, or Palestinian Americans here in the West Bank exercise here in the United States exercising their um, constitutional right to speak out against Zionism and against Israeli policy. Um, and I think, you know, uh, there are probably going to be a wide range of groups who uh, may, you know, join in this effort. If this becomes an effort that is aimed at, or, or if certain groups within this effort want to aim it at um, silencing Palestine activism, uh, that is going to, number one, uh, target Palestinians and those who speak up for them. Number two, uh, take the focus off where it should be, which is combating anti-Semitism uh, and those who are um, genuinely responsible for it. As we know from all of the data, including the ADL's data, this is primarily a phenomenon that exists on the right today. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, again, gives a, gives a free pass uh, to those uh, individuals uh, on the right uh, and these right-wing extremists. Um, and, and in doing so, uh, actually makes Jewish Americans uh, and, and, and everyone else less safe. 
Um, so, you know, I think it depends on what kind of effort this is going to be. If it is going to be a genuine effort to combat anti-Semitism, I think, uh, you know, there's opportunity for success and there's an opportunity for actual coalition um, uh, work together. Um, if this becomes uh, an effort to combat Palestinians and those who speak up for them, um, then I think it's only going to get uh, as far uh, as that and is not actually going to tackle anti-Semitism and probably uh, will not uh, have a very successful coalition effort behind it at all. Thank you. That is, that is a great place to leave this. And I think this is really just the first of what will be many discussions. So thank you both, Emma and Yusuf, so much for sharing your time and your analysis today. Um, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this extended episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Israel and Palestine. And I will put a ton of uh, pretty much everything that we mentioned here. I'll have a link for that. Please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can watch the videos of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. All those links are also at our website. So with that, I'm Laura Friedman signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you both so much for joining me.